My name's uh, David Snoke. I'm going to be bringing the word to you this morning. And uh, we've been going through the book of uh, Nehemiah. There is a children's church, by the way, which children are ready, uh, able, uh, willing to go to. Uh, that'll be, again, not really trying to remove them from us, but really give them an opportunity to understand what's going on so they can come back into the service at an older age and uh, understand the sermons. Uh, so we've been, as I said, <coughs> uh, preaching through a book of Nehemiah, and we're kind of at a high point or a pinnacle point in that book where it's a long story of what could be called an Old Testament revival, <coughs> a time when uh, God's people came together and there really was just an amazing outpouring of the Spirit. The people are coming together, they're listening to God's Word, uh, they're refounding the country. And this happens in the context of them coming back to uh, the land where Jerusalem was uh, and building the temple and starting anew after they had been in exile for many years. <clears throat> and so this comes now in the middle of a story, and the passage that we have in our bulletin, this is on uh, the next page of your bulletin here, it's fairly lengthy, uh, and, but I, and we actually, I, I cut out a bunch of verses just to make it a little bit uh, uh, more tractable. But uh, this is a story of people who are then going to tell a story. Uh, so it shouldn't be too hard to listen to because actually stories are always easier to listen to than something that's you know, really theological, right? So uh, this is going to be a lengthy story. And the context is, we talked about last week, that they had gotten together and they had uh, reformed the congregation uh, in Israel, rededicated the temple and so on. And they are now uh, coming uh, back to do uh, a day of confession. Uh, and um, so this passage we're going to look at is part of what was prayed on that day. And um, if you remember from last week, if you were here, I talked about part of revival is confession. Uh, part of revival starts with a humbling ourselves before the Lord. And so if you look at this passage in front of us, this is a lengthy humbling of themselves before God. Uh, and it says in the beginning that it was a quarter of a day. Uh, and so it was a lengthy period of time that they spent. So we're not going to spend a quarter of a day this morning uh, praying and confessing, uh, but we, it will be a somewhat lengthy passage. Uh, and at the end, it is our tradition uh, to say, uh, this is the word of the Lord, and your response is, thanks be to God. So hear the word of God from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of a day. Another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites <coughs> stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chanani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hasheb, Neah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth that is in it, and the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. 
You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them day by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way that they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, and did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and gave them water for their thirst. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land, and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven and according to your great mercies, You gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hands of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you were a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law, or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom, and amid and amid your great goodness that you gave them. And in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves to this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings who you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So, as I said last week, I looked at uh, aspects of revival, and one of the aspects was humble confession. And if you were here last week, you recall that 
we move beyond confession and, and humbleness to rejoicing and joy. So because of the fact that they had been able to come before God and know his forgiveness and know his grace, they moved past that into a time of rejoicing. Uh, and we see a little bit of that in the passage that we have in front of us where it talks about how they were joyful and, they were, uh, and, and so on at the very beginning. Uh, but this is now, you could say, a focusing in on one of the aspects that I talked about last week, which is the aspect of confession and humility. And so I'm going to expand this out, as chapter 9 does here, expands out this concept of confession. Uh, they come before God, and they, after they've done celebrating and rededicating and so on, they now come and spend a whole day in a time of confession. And of course, the application of this is going to be, this is a template for our own confessions. Uh, this is something for us to listen to and say, how do we come before God, and how do we approach Him? So let me just start in then. The first aspect, which you see in the very first part of this passage, is that an honest prayer of confession starts with humble worship of who God is and basically saying he is in charge and we are not. And so if you look at these first verses from 5 to 9, it's a lengthy prayer, and yet it, the whole first part of it has nothing to do with confession, you would think. It starts in just really praising and honoring God, starting from how he is the creator of the heavens, uh, how he called Abram uh, from his city, how he set up the nation of Israel, uh, and did all of these things. And so, you can also notice in the beginning of the passage, <clears throat> it says that they worshipped and confessed. Uh, confession and worship go together, and that's what we do in the service. We've already done that with the time of confession. Uh, that in Hebrew, uh, the word that's translated in English, worship, literally means to bow down before to humble oneself before. And so as we come to God, we bow down. And part of that is truth-telling about who we are, that we are honest. So this is going to be a a sort of shorter point, uh, this first one here, Uh, just to say that in our prayers, in our prayers of confession, do we start with praise? Do we start by orienting ourselves toward who God really is? Now, I would say, if you're like me, a good fraction of our prayers is spent in things like demanding things from God, arguing with God, negotiating with God, threatening God. I won't believe in you if you don't do this for me. Am I right? right? Is, this is not just me. Um, in a way, it's better to pray than to not pray. Uh, and so I would say, if you're praying and you're arguing with God and you're mad at God, like, it's still better to be talking to him face to face than to turn away from him. Uh, But one way to move beyond that is to realize that my stance needs to be one of humility. Uh, And to argue with God, to demand of God, to say, I'm going to punish you, I'm not going to obey you unless you do this for me. Uh, Those are positions of incredible arrogance. And the grace, of course, is that God allows people to come in and talk to him, even with such positions of arrogance. Uh, And yet, when we really are revived by the Holy Spirit, when we are really changed, we have a position of humility. We have a position of humbleness before God. And part of that is simply lifting our eyes up to see who he truly is. And that's what you see in the first nine verses here, uh, or or verses five through nine, uh, how it's just a recounting of the great works of God. And so I would encourage you, first of all, uh, if you have a hard time praying, start out by pure praise. It's actually really hard to do. It's so easy to slide in a prayer into requests, right? It's really hard to just give pure praise, <clears throat> say things about God. God, this is who you are, and I am not. 
uh, and, this is, and this is just puts me uh, in a humble position before you. And so that is, I would say, the first point, is that honest confession starts out actually recognizing who we're confessing to. It's not a therapeutic thing on my side to say, well, let me unburden myself and therefore I'll feel better. It's basically a Christian confession is saying, I bow before the real one, the awesome one, uh, the one who made the heavens and the earth, uh, and I am humble before him. Okay, so that's the first point. Second point, uh, honest confession before God is based on a sure confidence in God's mercy. And if we, as I was reading through that, did you uh, catch how many times the word mercy was used? Uh, maybe you did, uh, maybe you didn't. Uh, verse 17 says, But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. <clears throat> then in verse 19 it says, In your great mercies. Verse 27, According to your great mercies you gave them saviors who saved them. Uh, Verse 31, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Uh, So we talked about this a little bit last week, that um, really there's a, a real sense in which we can't confess honestly if we don't have that confidence that we will be forgiven. Uh, This is a, a, really, I'm going to give it a little bit of a nod to to John Calvin in the very beginning of his institutes. He has these sort of paradoxical statements. He says, you can't know yourself unless you know God, but also you can't know God unless you know yourself. So let me unpack that a little bit. You can't know yourself unless you know God. And let me rephrase that. Unless you have confidence that you are forgiven, you can't be honest enough about yourself to look at your sin, really. That we fear so much judgment, we fear the sense of being judged, that we can't even look honestly at ourselves without the great sense of confidence in God's grace. So if you don't have that sense of God's grace, you probably are not really looking very deep inside, and you're probably not really fully honest with yourself about who you are. But the paradox is, of course, that we can't know ourselves uh, unless we know God, we also can't know God unless we know ourselves. Why is that? Well, essentially, unless we see God as merciful and gracious, uh, we really won't know him. And the only way we know that is by understanding that we need him. Uh, and as we understand the gospel, we understand that we need God, and that makes us draw near to him. If we don't feel any need for him, then we're not going to draw near and so it's, it's, again, sort of a, a cycle. I can't know myself. I'll never be willing to look at myself and my sin uh, unless uh, I trust in the goodness of God to forgive me. <clears throat> but on the other hand, I won't really want to draw near to God unless I think of myself as a sinner who needs to be saved. Well, the paradox is broken by the fact that God breaks the cycle, that God is the one who breaks in and opens our eyes <clears throat> so that we begin at least to see our sin uh, and then move on to seeking him as we start to see ourselves as people who truly need a Savior, people who need to be rescued. And so, uh, just the end of this second point then, is again, in your prayers as you think about praying to God, do you look back specifically in thankfulness for the cross uh, and the acts of mercy of God in your own life? And do you look to the promises of God that he will not abandon his people? In this context here, the people of Israel are looking at the promises to Abraham uh, that God promised that he would always have 
his people that would be his kingdom and his people. In the New Testament, everyone who joins himself to Christ is considered one of God's people. And we have the same promises that God will not abandon his people. Do we trust in him for that? Do we trust that we can be joined to him and connected to him? All right, moving on to point three. So these points are going quickly, but they're going to slow down in a little bit. (laughs) Uh, Point three, and this is uh, one that will get us maybe thinking a little bit harder here, uh, is that honest confession is joined to other people and doesn't consist of throwing other people under the bus. So what do I mean by that? That essentially goes under the category of what's called confessing corporate sin or uh, acknowledging a corporate identity. So I want you to look especially here at verses 33 and 34 in the passage. So if you have the the bulletin in front of you, turn to that for a second. Uh, They're talking in this prayer, and they say, Yet you, God, have been righteous in all that has come upon us. You have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Now, who's the we that's in view there? Well, it's the we of the entire story before this verse. And it's basically the collective nation of Israel that they're confessing the sins of. And so they're saying, our fathers did this and our fathers did that. Continuing on in that same passage there, they say, we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings. Uh, And so essentially you could say the reason why they're recounting this long story of all of these deeds that we read is because they're owning it as saying, this is us. This is not people that have no connection to us, people long before the exile that are not related to us. Rather, they're saying, these are our people. And the whole context of this is them saying, we have sinned, our fathers, our kings. They're owning that connection. We also saw that in the prayer of confession, or the call to confession, rather, uh, that we looked at earlier in Psalm 106, where it says, we and our fathers have sinned. We, collectively, have committed iniquity and have done wickedness. Uh, So, this idea of a prayer of corporate uh, confession or corporate sin is one that kind of goes down hard in our society. Over the years, as we've uh, had city reformed here, a number of times people have talked to me or other people in leadership and said, I don't understand what's going on in that time of confession. Because uh, it has two times of prayer, right? There's a time of individual confession silently, and there's a time of corporate confession. And people say, well, I don't understand what's going on there. How can you confess corporately? I don't know what other people's sins are, uh, and so on. And actually, I would say that that is uh, really an evidence of the fact that we live in a society that is fundamentally what I would call alienated, that we fundamentally don't have a sense of connection uh, with each other. So let me just take a little time to talk about the notion of corporate sin, which is a very biblical one. So first of all, the idea of corporate sin is not saying we all do the same sins. It it might be that we all do the same sins, but it actually isn't crucial for the concept. Um, It's also not saying that the consequences of what my parents did have come to me. So since they were mean, I've grown up grouchy or something like that. That would be saying there's a consequence to sin. That also may be true, but that's also not the fundamental concept of corporate sin. Uh, Rather, the idea of corporate sin 
is the idea of imputing the sin of other people to you because of your connection to them. Okay? Now, that doesn't make sense to most of us, or many of us, uh, because we don't see ourselves as connected to anyone. And so, therefore, the idea of someone being so connected to me that their sin could be imputed to me uh, is, is, is hard for us to grasp. But theologically, I'm going to argue, if you reject that idea, you have to reject the gospel itself. Because the heart of the gospel, which we've seen in multiple passages we read uh, earlier in the service, <clears throat> is that when we are joined, by, joined to Christ by faith in him, then his blessings are imputed to us and our sin is imputed to him by virtue of that connection. That often is a stumbling block to people to understand the gospel because, again, we don't understand ourselves as being connected to anybody. And so how could it be just that, that my sin could fall on Jesus? Uh, because he's just some other guy. But if I'm intimately connected to him scripturally, then we are corporately connected and my sin is owned by him. Uh, and in the same way, uh, his blessings flow to me. We say that also in the passage in front of us in a way that they not only talk about the sins of their fathers being imputed to them, but also the blessings of Abraham being imputed to them. That's a major theme in the Old Testament, that because Abraham was righteous, because we're connected to him, <clears throat> therefore we are blessed in him. And so there is this corporate blessing and corporate sin. It goes both ways. Uh, now, in Scripture, <clears throat> there's another example of this, uh, and in your additional Scriptures there, uh, in Romans chapter 5, I've uh, printed the uh, passage there. I'm not going to read that. But it contrasts uh, Adam's sin and Christ's righteousness and basically puts both of them side by side and says you are either in Adam or you're in Christ. In other words, you don't actually have a choice whether you're connected to somebody or not. You're going to be connected to somebody. You're either going to be joined to Adam or you're going to be joined to Jesus. Uh, and if you were joined to Adam, then you're in him and his sin is a curse on you. And if you are in Christ, then his, your sin is taken by Christ and atoned for on the cross. Uh, now, again, this is hard for us uh, because we don't really see ourselves as, as connected to anybody. One point I'll make, just as an argument, that Scripture really does teach this, is the very fact that there's never an argument given as to why we are in Adam and why Adam's sin is imputed to us. Uh, it just assumes it. And why does it assume it? Well, because in the ancient mind, it would have been obvious if we're the children of Adam, then his sin is corporately owned by all of us. And so we are under the same curse. And so it was an assumption of that day and the ancient peoples that they understood that they had a sense of connection and they weren't all alienated uh, individuals as well. So we don't really have this sense. Um, maybe we do a little uh, in Pittsburgh whenever the Steelers win. Uh, we're like, we won. Right? Now you weren't on the field. Right? You weren't running around with a football and yet you feel ownership uh, and yet, I would say the nature of our modern corporate uh, conception is if somebody disappoints me, I cut them off. So if the Steelers have a terrible season, we're saying, those bums, you know, it's not we anymore, right? It's them. They're the problem. Uh, we're not connected anymore. Uh, a lot of people in our society might say, I love my family, I love my church, but in practice, if they disappoint me, I'm out of here. I move away. I drop them. 
so we have sort of a, a, a semi-union, a semi-jointness, a semi-corporateness, where we're sort of with people when it you know, kind of looks good, uh, but we're kind of cut off if things are, are not what we like. Uh, and in general, um, <clears throat> this alienation that we have, to a large degree, is a reaction against something that is a real thing to react against. Um, a lot of people associate a sense of corporate identity with things like cults uh, or um, uh, sort of jingoism, uh, the idea that you know, we're for us and therefore we hate everybody else. Right? And so a lot of people in our culture are uncomfortable with patriotism, for example. The idea of saying rah, rah for us. Because what they hear in that is, oh, and we hate everybody else. Right? We, we're very uncomfortable with that. And the reason is because we've seen it in our last hundred years or so go very badly, uh, you know, where people are very, very rah-rah us that can turn to, and therefore we hate uh, these other people. Uh, and yet, I would say, when we're doing that, we're actually throwing the baby out with the bathwater, because the Bible says you have a corporate identity, whether you like it or not. You belong to a city, you belong to a family, you belong to a nation, uh, and you have these corporate connections. And if you're a Christian, you also have an identity connected to the people of God, that you belong to the Christian world even if they sin. Now, at one level you can say um, God is our highest identity, that we belong to God, and that identity is higher than all other identities. But I would say many Protestant Christians, when they hear that, they say, and therefore I'm not connected to anybody else. It's just me and God. Uh, and there's really no connection to, to my nation, to my people, uh, you know, even the idea of my people sounds kind of weird uh, to a lot of people in our culture. Uh, and yet, scripturally, what, we would, uh, what it would say is you have multiple identities. That you have an identity in God as his child. You have an identity as someone who is in a family. You have an identity as someone who is in a nation and a city and so forth. Uh, and, and these are things that are good and, and, and right. That you should acknowledge your identity uh, and your connection to other people, not throw them under the bus. And so in a way, the idea of corporate confession is saying, I acknowledge my identity as part of this people, and I share their guilt, and I refuse to disconnect myself from them. I'm not going to throw them, throw them under the bus. Okay, well, to my fourth point. Uh, particular sins are repented particularly. And that language is great. Um, that comes from our confessions, uh, from the Westminster Confession from the 1600s. And we're actually going to read that uh, a little bit later in the service. <clears throat> um, what that means is that we don't just sort of generically, vaguely say, I'm a sinner, uh, but we are willing to be specific about it. Uh, and on the individual basis, I think a lot of us are familiar with this. There's a lot, probably almost everybody in our society would say, I'm not perfect, everybody's a sinner. But if you challenge them on any particular sin, they rise up in anger and defensiveness, right? And so you'd say, is that really a real confession then? Do they really think of themselves as a sinner? Are they really humble if any particular sin is rejected, even though they might say, well, generically, generally, uh, I'm a sinner? Um, and uh, what about corporate sins? Um, corporate sins also need to be repented specifically or particularly. Uh, now, it'd be really easy for me at this point uh, to end the sermon and say America is generally sinful uh, and we should be generally humble. Uh, but as you look at this passage in front of us here, uh, 
What you see is specific sins being recounted. <clears throat> They're not just saying, God, you've been you know, generally uh, right to be angry at us because we've sort of been generally sinful. They're naming specific sins. And so it, it seems to me, in the spirit of the passage, for me to end the sermon at this point and say, well, um, generally we have corporate sins, but let's not actually talk about any of them, it would be sort of against the spirit of the passage. So I sort of feel compelled to talk about some specific corporate sins that we have. Uh, and this is going to make everybody a little uncomfortable. Um, why? Why does this make us uncomfortable? Well, first of all, because it could be viewed actually as an act of alienation. A lot of times when people talk about American sins, it's an act of rejection of their corporate identity, of saying, that's America, that's them, that's not me. I'm out of here. Or I have my own special group that I belong to. I'm not one of them. Uh, and so it can be heard as an act of alienation, of cutting ourselves off. Uh, but uh, it doesn't need to be, again. That, in fact, uh, again, like uh, our individual sins, confessing our sins is a first step toward drawing close to God. Um, it could be heard as saying, well, we think this nation is worse than other nations. But if you notice, actually, in the passage that we have in front of us, the, the uh, Israelites who are confessing their sins there are not making reference to say, oh, well, our sins are worse than other people's sins, that's why you judged us. The other nations are sort of irrelevant in some sense. They're confessing in absolute terms that they have sinned against God. Uh, and again, if you think about it in an individual sense, we don't come before God and say, I'll only confess my sins if they're worse than other people's sins. If my sins are not worse than other people's, there's no need to confess. Between you and God, we're on an absolute standard, and we need to say, was it right or was it wrong, uh, and confess it, whether or not it was worse or better than anybody else. Uh, and thirdly, this can make people uncomfortable because it can feel like it's being attached to a political agenda. Uh, it's very easy to move from, if you confess the sin, then that means that you need to do X, Y, and Z. Uh, and if you've been in this church very long, you know that we're not a political church, uh, not strongly. Uh, it's not we're opposed to politics, but we don't do it from the pulpit. Um, but um, it, uh, if you're new, okay, this is not what we do every week, but I'm going to touch on some things that have political implications. Um, but I'm, I basically, corporate sins are extremely hard to change and deep, and they don't usually allow quick fixes. And so I'm not going to delve into any fixes for any of this stuff. I'm not going to talk about, this is what we need to do uh, in response. Uh, so what I want you to hear, if I talk about corporate sins that we have, I don't want you to hear, oh, those people are doing those sins. Therefore, we should be angry at them. The idea of corporate sin is owning and saying, we, we have done this. We have allowed this. Uh, and yet it's so easy for us to say, oh yeah, that type of people, uh, those people have done this, uh, and so that's the problem. Um, so what we should be hearing is, this is an honest look at who the, part of the, who the people that we belong to are. And pray like the Israelites, God, you are merciful and just, and therefore we trust in you that you will, you will redeem us and that you will forgive us. So what are the sins I'm talking about? Oh, you just can't stand it, can you? Um, Racism and abortion, okay? I'm going to talk about racism first, then I'm going to talk about abortion. So I told you I'm going to make everybody a little uncomfortable here. Uh, race is really easy for us to say, I'm not racist. My, pa my parents weren't even racist. I grew up in the North. 
Um, we don't have racism up here. Um, in Israel, what's interesting in this prayer that we have in front of us is that you don't hear in this prayer uh, them saying, that faction of idolaters, you know, the group that was idolaters, they were really bad. But of course, we who are here you know, confessing before you, God, wouldn't be like them. Uh, but rather, there's an ownership that we collectively uh, were part of this system. Uh, and in a sense, as I said before, the idea of corporate sin is it may or may not be that you were actually involved or your family is involved. But the idea of corporate sin is to say, because of the joining, because of the connection, I am imputed sin, even if I didn't do it myself. And that's, again, it's a hard concept for us to grasp. The idea that by your virtue of union, that in fact you have a collective guilt. Uh, and again, I would go back to, just remember, if it wasn't for that imputation through union, you wouldn't be saved through Christ. Because that's how it works with him. Uh, so in some ways, if we go way back and talk about slavery, a lot of people say, well, that was ended in the Civil War. And to some degree, the disaster of the Civil War, uh, people would argue that was its own, in some sense, expiation of all the sins of slavery. <clears throat> but things are much more recent than that. Um, in the 100, 150 or so years after the Civil War, uh, people were denied the vote. They were given different treatment under the law. And basically, terrorism was practiced. Um, there's a lot of people who are alive today who have memories of a near relative being lynched uh, or something similar happening. Uh, and it's, it, it comes even closer to home in our denomination. We talked about this a few years ago when the denomination was issuing statements on this. Uh, as recently as the 1960s, or even early 1970s, there was churches that are now in our denomination. Our denomination didn't exist until 1973, uh, but the churches that came into it had official policies of segregation. Uh, and there's a fellow that I knew from this presbytery <clears throat> who moved to a church down south and was going through, he, he was a pastor there, and he was going through the books uh, of the church, uh, you know, the old minutes of session. And like, you know, in the 1960s, there are minutes of session saying, how can we keep the black people out of this church? Uh, that's in writing in the book. So what do you do if you're the pastor in that church? Well, again, he engaged in corporate public confession. And he confessed this before the congregation. And then he went to the Martin Luther King Day celebration and he confessed it again uh, to his city. Uh, and, and he confessed particular sins uh, particularly. Uh, so that's what repentance can look like. Um, now, I am broad brushing all this so quickly because of time, but I'm just going to uh, now move on to abortion. Uh, abortion is also, I would say, a type of alienation. It's a society that says, well, your problem is your problem, not our problem. Uh, and uh, so, you know, you have to solve this on your own. Uh, to, you know, just to give it a, uh, again, sort of a personal experience, uh, Sandy and I uh, worked for many years at a crisis pregnancy center. We had phone calls coming to our house. And invariably, the women calling would say, uh, I, I have nowhere else to turn. Uh, there's, there's no other thing that I can do. They weren't people who were saying, oh, I just you know, freely think this is a great idea. They're people who were saying, I have to because... And essentially, that's the fundamental element of, of an alienated society when you say, you have to do this on your own, you have to solve this, and, and basically to say, the solution to your problem is that we'll kill your child for you. What kind of society is that? 
Now, I'm not going to argue, make arguments for why the unborn child is human. Uh, that would be as demeaning as arguing as they did 150 years ago why a black person is a human. Uh, everybody knows that they're human. That's a smokescreen. Um, I also mentioned that it's connected to racism. Uh, black abortion rates are five to ten times higher than white abortion rates. And many of the people who advocated abortion initially uh, argued this explicitly, that abortion will solve the problem of black poverty by killing them off. I mean, that was basically the argument that was being made by many people, that poverty should be solved by getting rid of poor people. Now, in all of this, as I said, I've thrown out corporate sins. I'm not going to give you any solutions. I'm not going to tell you what should be done. Uh, in fact, I would say both of these come down to the fact that we like easy solutions. Uh, we basically come down to us saying, these people are troublesome to me, get them out of the way. Right? I don't like these, they're creating problems for me. The easy solution is to cut off and to remove. So, that's kind of heavy. Uh, but I want to finish by just going back to where I started with, which is back to the mercy of God. The point of all of this is not to say, well, okay, you need to have a heavy guilt trip now, but to do with our corporate sins the same as we do with our individual sins, uh, to, to turn to the mercy of God. Um, God, uh, in all of this prayer they're talking about, this is primarily a prayer of corporate sin, um, they are standing on the forgiveness of God, both for individual sins and for corporate sins. And that is what we can do uh, as well. We don't have to carry a burden of one or the other. It's funny, somehow I feel in our culture, in a weird way, it's almost as if we say, well, individual sins can be forgiven in Christ, but corporate sins never. I mean, corporate sins, you just live under the law. <laughs> and so uh, it's almost as though um, evangelicals sometimes will say, well, if you were to tell me that this is a corporate sin I'm guilty of, that would be terrible because I would feel I had no justification and I would feel guilty all the time. Well, that's what many people say about their individual sins, right? You can't tell me I sin because if you tell me I sin, then that will make me feel guilty all the time. But that's precisely what the gospel is about. The gospel is about saying that you can be forgiven of your sins, and that applies both individually uh, and corporately as well. So let me finish with uh, just looking at the quotes on the front of the bulletin here uh, from John Perkins, somebody who is um, a father of the uh, modern evangelical church, um, uh, was thrown in jail in the 1970s for protesting for the right to vote. Uh, and so it's within our lifetime. Uh, and he says, uh, I am an old man, and this is one of my dreams, that my descendants will one day live in the land where people are quick to confess their wrongdoing and forgive the wrongdoing of others and are eager, eager to build something together. And then jumping down, no matter how damaged people become, they still bear that image of God. No matter how much people have been oppressed or how much they have oppressed others, the part of the made in his image is worth rescuing and restoring. So many people, when they hear an evangelical sermon telling them to repent of their sins, hear nothing but judgment because they are justified by their works. The gospel says that you can be forgiven through the work of Christ for your individual sins. It also says you can be forgiven through the work of Christ for your corporate sins. And that's what's going on in the passage that we have in front of us uh, in Nehemiah. Let's pray. Father, we 